brought to you by Charity Mobile, the phone company that shares your values. More information is available at CharityMobile.com. People often ask how the Society of Jesus, the Order of the Jesuits, became synonymous with the crisis in the church. How the Jesuits became the very symbol of all that is wrong in the church today. And while there are certainly good priests in the Society of Jesus today, I have spoken with some of them myself who are good traditionally minded priests, priests who would have been recognized as Catholic priests by our forebears, unlike what we see today. While there are certainly examples of that in the Jesuit order today, the reality is the Jesuits have been at the forefront, at the point of the spear of the corruption and crisis in the Catholic Church today, manifesting most notably in figures like Father James Martin and, of course, Jorge Mario Bergoglio, Pope Francis. But how that happened is something people often ask. And of course, there are really two factors to this. The first is, of course, the infiltration thesis, the placement of men unfit for the priesthood by the enemies of the church of various kinds, the stonecutters, those behind the Iron Curtain, and others. But really, it was this factor for, was what led into the second factor. Men unfit for the priesthood would eventually have enough influence in the Jesuit order that in 1965, there was, a, there was the need for a new head of the Jesuit order. And so the 31st General Congregation was held in 1965, a monumental year in the, here, in the history of the church. 1965 was the year that the Second Vatican Council closed. And in 1965, a new superior general was chosen for the Jesuits by the members of the Jesuits. But that was not all they did. The Jesuits also issued a whole host of new documents. And among these documents was the first document that is really the only important one for how this happened, for everything else flows from it. And that is the decree number one of the Jesuit order from this, from this general congregation. The document is called The Mission of the Society of Jesus Today. And it is the re-emphasis or the refocusing of the order of the Jesuits' mission in the church to dedicate itself to the faith, but also to fighting injustice in the world, fighting oppression and social issues. This is how the Jesuit order became what it is now. Certainly the seeds were there for many years before this. I have talked about in the past priests who were instrumental in the rise of modernism, and they happen to be Jesuits, at least the ones I've covered so far, a task I will get back to soon. Most notably among those priests was Teilhard de Chardin, someone who I have actually not yet done a bio on, but I have done those on his teachers so far. The influence of those priests cannot go unmentioned here. But in 1965, the 31st Congregation for the Society of Jesus began. And in 1966, they issued the following document. It is not terribly long, and I will read it for you in full here. It is important to understand how we got to this place. 
Some call for the suppression of the Jesuits again. History recounts that the suppression of the Jesuits in, when it happened the first time was actually a monumental blunder for the church done at the behest of secular rulers that allowed the Protestant Reformation to really flourish. That could be another topic for another time. But perhaps this time, the condition of the Jesuit order does warrant suppression. Not for me to say. But now, here is, the, here is Decree 1 on the mission of the Society of Jesus Today from General Congregation 31. The document was issued in 1966. On the life and mission of the society in this new era. In this new age in which the human race now finds itself, the Society of Jesus, according to the spirit of the whole council, which is itself in process of renewal, recognizes the difficulties with regard to its goal and plan of life which are arising from the changes that have taken place in man's way of living and thinking. At the same time, it recognizes the opportunities which arise from the new developments in our world, and those which flow from the renewal of the church that has been begun by the council. It intends, therefore, to take a very close look at its own nature and mission, in order that, faithful to its own vocation, it can renew itself and adapt its life and its activities to the exigencies of the church and the needs of contemporary man. The nature and the special grace of our vocation are to be discovered above all in the dynamic development of the society from its earliest historical beginnings. 2. The Origin of the Society in the Experience of the Spiritual Exercises For this history has its beginning in the spiritual exercises which our Holy Father Ignatius and his companions went through. Led by the spiritual experience, they formed an apostolic group rooted in charity, and in which, after they had taken the vows of chastity and poverty, and had been raised to the priesthood, they would offer themselves as a holy offering to God, for whose praise and honor they had given up all they had. They had heard the invitation of Christ the King, and had followed it. For that reason, they not only dedicated themselves entirely to labor, but desiring to become outstanding in every service of their king, they made offerings of greater worth and importance, so that they would be sent under the banner of Christ by him into the entire world, spreading his teachings among all degrees and conditions of men. 3. The Mission Under the Roman Pontiff In this spirit they had offered and dedicated themselves in their lives to Christ our Lord and to his true and legitimate vicar on earth, so that he, as vicar of Christ, might dispose of them and might send them where he judged, that they could bear greater fruit. But the first mission entrusted to them by Pope Paul III was one that was likely to scatter the group of fathers in all directions. Therefore, after many deliberations in which they tried to distinguish between various spiritual inspirations and weigh the reasons for each side carefully, these first fathers decided that they should not break up a society united in God, but rather gradually strengthen it and stabilize it by making themselves into a unified body. Indeed, they judged it more expedient to give their obedience to one of their number, that they might more successfully perfectly carry out their first desire of fulfilling the divine will in all things. Thus also the society would be more securely preserved. 4. The Missionary Constitution of the Society of Jesus Thus it came about that the promise made to God of obeying the Roman pontiff with regard to all missions turned out to be our beginning and first foundation.
Such an offering expressed the consummation of that knowledge of Christ which had acquired in the exercises, and united and drew that first apostolic brand together in one body. It was in order to fulfill this offering more completely that the society, as a mode of life, had its beginning under the Constitutions. The first steps of the society were directed by Ignatius himself in the way of the Lord, by his spiritual experience, in accordance with which he interpreted the course of events in the light of their relation to God. The result was that Ignatius founded the society as an organization which would continually renew itself in the church through the inner vigor of the exercises under the vitalizing impulse of the spirit to fulfill those things which its vocation and its mission to promote the divine glory and the greater service of souls demanded. 5. New Developments in the History of Man the history of four centuries, with its fluctuations between honor and humiliation, has cast a rather penetrating light upon the nature of the society and its originating idea. With whatever degree of fidelity to its vocation and mission the apostolic works of the society were begun and carried on, nonetheless, on the one hand, they show an internal dynamism in the attitude of universality and flexibility while, on the other hand, the limitations and deficiencies on its individual members and has been revealed. Today, however, our society, along with the whole church, finds the conditions of human history profoundly changed. The members themselves share in the contemporary social and cultural transformation and the new ways of living which arise from socialization, urbanization, industrialization, and ever-widening communication among men, and they do not fail to participate in the changed ways of thinking and feeling and weighing the values of human life. They experience also the fact that a keener sense of liberty has developed and that there is a more universal desire for the full and free life. They realize, therefore, at the same time, that the conditions which affect religious life have been changed. For they are conscious on the one hand of that purifying of the religious life, which, according to the Second Vatican Council, flows from the more critical faculty of judging, which has grown up in our day. They are conscious as well of the grave problems which can be found among many, even among Christians, arising from the crisis to which the gospel itself and the church's doctrine have been exposed because of modern criticism and contemporary philosophy. And they cannot avoid hearing the widespread criticism that the teaching and life of the Christian estrange him from the world and its struggles, while at the same time great multitudes are still compelled to live a life unworthy of the human person and the human race itself remains without any true unity. They are also acutely aware that they are surrounded by various sorts of atheistic teachings, and especially by that humanism which contends that liberty consists in this, that man is to be an end unto himself, the sole artisan and creator of his own history, and that this freedom cannot be reconciled with the affirmation of God. Often, too, they feel in themselves also that the ambivalent desire of their contemporaries to perfect themselves as men. 6. The need for revitalizing the mission of the society. But all the members of the society, firmly grounded in faith, in company with all other Christians, lift their eyes to Christ, in whom they find that absolute perfection of self, giving an undivided love, which alone completely reconciles man to God and to himself, for unless men adhere to Christ and follow the way which he shows, they desire and seek in vain for that full realization of themselves, which they long for in their undertakings. From this love for Christ, the society offers itself completely to the church in these needs, so that the Supreme Pontiff, as the Vicar of Christ, may send all its members into the vineyard of the Lord. 
Thus the society will try to be of assistance to the church according to the measure of the grace of its vocation, while the church itself is helping the world so that the kingdom of God may come and the salvation of the human race may be achieved. Our Lord, whose name, who, with whose name our society has been signed and under the standard of whose cross it desires to serve the kingdom of his love, is himself the goal of human history. The point to which the desires of history and civilization converge, the center of the human race, the joy of all hearts, and the fulfillment of all seeking. Enlightened and united in his spirit, we journey toward the consummation of human history, one which fully accords with the counsel of God's love, to re-establish all things in Christ, both those in the heavens and those on earth. 7. The need of renewal and adaptation in the society. In order that our society may aptly fulfill in this new age its mission under the Roman Pontiff, the 31st General Congregation has striven with all its power so to promote a renewal that those things may be removed from our body which could constrict its life and hinder it from fully attaining its end, and that in this way its internal dynamic freedom may be made strong and vigorous and ready for every form of the service of God. In many ways, that document may sound not that stark, but there was, I will bring you now back to, of course, first and foremost, here, back to section 5, subparagraphs 10 and 11, where universality and flexibility are actually lauded within the ranks of the Jesuits. Universality and flexibility here, of course, means universality and flexibility in morality, and especially when you under, when you remember that this statement was made in the context of social change that was happening in the 1960s and in the 1950s preceding it, the post-war era of the Western world, where upheavals that actually truly began in the 1920s but had been put on hold by the Great Depression really began to take off. Here we see that in this document that many of the, the priests of the Jesuit order had themselves internalized these changes, these new values of the society, the broader society. Here we see a call in somewhat ambiguous language, but a call nonetheless for the Jesuits to align themselves with these social changes. In the 1960s that meant aligning itself with social justice a term, historically, that the Catholic Church coined. The term was used in papal documents before this, but it meant something very different than what it means now. Here we see in this document, in this section, in, subsection, in, in section 5, subparagraphs 10 and 11, that the member, quoting the document, the members themselves share in the contemporary social and cultural transformation and the new ways of living which arise from socialization, urbanization, and industrialization. The members themselves share in this. They share in the new values of the Western world, of the 1960s. The 1960s were about a rise of libertinism, moral license, and of course, justice. Reframed in a new social context. That's what this is about. And from here, from this document, everything else that we have seen in the church today 
has flown. Let me know what you thought of this in the comments, please. I'm curious, do you think that the Jesuits can be saved? There are whispers that the, Jesu the heads of the Jesuits right now are worried that there are a fair number of rigid seminarians who are attracted who are attracted to a Jesuit charism, a traditional Jesuit charism, missionary work of of correcting the errors of our so-called separated brethren who are traditionally minded as priests. There are whispers that, that they are that they feel they need to do something about this problem that they have in their seminaries. But of course, they, they may just be whispers. They may just be rumors. Do you think the Jesuit order can be saved? Let me know in the comments, please. Like and subscribe if you haven't. It really does help. And as always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.